Welcome to DMs Discuss, where this week DMs will discuss homebrew house rules. Uh, not all of these will be things that we've homebrewed ourselves, but they are things that we use in our games, and there are some things that are, you know, pulled from different systems and stuff that we'll talk about. Um, yeah, and I mean, the reason you might want to use these are because they just add a little bit more flavor to, to your campaign, and rules as written can be pretty cut and dry for the most part, but the beauty of playing in different games is different DMs tend to use different house rules and different homebrew and it can really kind of change the feel of a campaign and add a little bit of uh you know a little bit of that like stylistic flair or dm dm style to the game yeah for sure i think um i don't think i've played in a game in the last like 10 years that didn't have at least like a couple of house rules built in um just it it makes the game a little bit more fun and it also allows you to tailor um the experience of playing in your game a little bit more to it like some of the stuff that we've been doing uh in in a new game uh, do you want to start just like right at the beginning with character creation? Yeah, I mean, c- creating characters. I want to hear about some of the rules you guys use. And um, these are two popular ones that I think kind of float around. I believe uh, Mike and Chris, you've used one of these two. Uh, but the first one is basically the heroic array. So when creating a creating a character, there's the standard array, which is certain um, certain stats you would allocate to your various stats. Um, so let's say, I don't know, 10, 12, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's the heroic array, which is kind of a beefed up version of this. Players are going to be a little bit stronger. So the heroic array is the numbers 11, 13, 15, 16, 17, 18. So right off the bat, one of their character stats is going to be an 18. So this leads to pretty powerful level ones. Yeah, I mean, well, it'll probably be 20, right? When you account for a class or race or whatever they're going to be choosing. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind this in like high magic campaigns, especially if you're starting like one shots at higher levels or things like that. This makes sense to me. Um, and it also helps to be a little bit more balanced because I typically play in campaigns where we always roll and that can lead to like some characters being like much more powerful or at least starting off much more powerful than others. So I, I don't mind the heroic ray. I think it has its place in like high magic campaigns um or just like higher level things that you're starting off where you're not gonna have room for character advancement over time i like it yeah i could definitely see that like there's something to be said for kind of like having everyone be at the same level but at the same time like i guess for me also i would actually say i would use this array in low magic campaigns uh mm. just because like if you're playing high magic and kind of like you're everyone's quickly getting you know, plus twos, plus threes, and they're also easily at, sitting at like you know a, a plus five based on having a twenty in a stat. It c- can kind of get some numbers a little bit out, out of out, out of control. Uh, so personally, like if I was going to use it, I'd, I'd use it in a low magic setting. That's a really good yeah. point. The thing I, the only thing I don't like about this is that <clears throat> for me, in most games with a lot of people, like the character's identity or the character's personality is based around their dump stat. And there isn't really a dump stat in the heroic array. Yeah, I, I mean, I get that. And when we talk about dump stat, we're talking about like, you know, a barbarian going extremely low intellect or intelligence because that that stat isn't important. I mean, the dumb barbarian is a trope and there's a reason for that. Intelligence is not a stat that barb, barbs focus on. 
Um, I will say that I, I would not use this heroic array in a campaign, really. Um, I, I like this more for one shots where you're a little bit more combat heavy and you really want to like test your players. I think allowing them to start with this heroic array. Um, I think that's fun, but I don't know that I'd run a full campaign heroic array. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree. I think one shots are really where I think this sits best, uh, you know, cause it will kind of let them have that power fantasy. Uh, but personally, like I, w- I probably wouldn't use it like at the start of a, a regular campaign. Just because I want to have that growth and have you know, having the uh, the twenty stat something to kind of aspire to rather than being a near guarantee at level one. Yeah, I think part of the I, I think too. I think that that having an eighteen to start in certain stats or like having one stat at twenty right away and then you ASI at level four to to kind of bump up some other stats. I think one thing this heroic array does is make those like plus one to a skill feat or plus one to an attribute, like plus one decks, like those feats, it makes them less attractive because you're not really leveraging the the kind of stat bonus where if you're starting with standard array or rolled and you roll less, those feats become attractive. ASIs become attractive. Um, I think this takes away a lot in the campaign. Yeah, I'd agree. But I do really yeah, like fair. it for, for one-shots and this, like, if you're going to play a one-shot and you really want to challenge your players and you're going to throw higher CR or bigger monsters at them, yeah, give them the heroic array and let them go to town. Yeah, first, like, super challenging things, I think this is a, a good idea. Yeah, and I, but to, to come back to just one point about the whole notion of everyone on an even playing field, in a campaign, I don't like that. I, I do like the notion of, dump, like, characters playing around their dump, dump stat but I also like the notion of like, hey, I just rolled bad, so I'm going to have to find ways to, to make this up. Um, I kind of like having that that disparity. And, but I mean, in our in our character creation, I guess this is a homebrew rule that we didn't have uh, listed here for the episode. But I know that during character creation, sometimes I, I don't know if Chris does this, but Mike, I know you do this. If your stats rolled is less than like a 70 total you just re-roll because that would be just way too crappy of a character yeah yeah i'm a fan of that as well just you know if you get a bunch of stuff that's just it's just so bad that I, I don't care because you know at the end of the day like i don't want people rolling until they manage to get 18s and everything but like if your stats are so low that it's not going to be fun then then roll it yeah yeah, yeah basically I, like I at the end of the that. day i want everybody to have fun like you said so I want people to play characters that they can grow into, but also that, you know, they're not going to be trailing behind everybody all of the time. Like if you don't have a single stat above like a 12 reroll. So it sounds like we like the heroic array in certain kind of uh, scenarios. Um, And it sounds like we do like the notion of kind of letting players during characterization have a little bit more power. Um, And I think this leads perfectly into our, our next little homebrew rule which has now been made part of one D&D is that at level one, you can choose a feat. I think depending on the campaign, depending on the situation, it's good. Um, it does level the playing field a little bit. So like not everybody's just going to play varying human all the time. Um, now that you have the basic origins where you can choose your stats, right? Uh, you just have varying humans getting an. I mean, very humans still get an extra feat. So that makes it a little bit more attractive, but I think it can give you a little bit more, personality or a little bit more uh creativity on how you build your character when you start off that way 
Um, you can really specialize in something or uh, like bump something up that would otherwise have been bad because you did roll terribly. So I, I don't mind it. I think it, it helps with breeding more creativity and character creation. I will say that I do enjoy what one D&D has done with level one feats, but I would definitely use it with the caveat that I would only allow the level one feats from one D&D. That, that's what I've done in my oh, current 100%, game. 100%, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, we have homebrewed. I have played in homebrew where just, like, let characters grab any level one feat, um, which, you know, there are some pretty powerful ones there. Um, no, Sentinel, I'm looking at you. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I agree. The 1D&D has feats listed, and they have prerequisite levels. So I think that allowing players to take that level one feat with the caveat that it's one of those level one feats, I think it's totally cool. Yeah, especially because it seems that 1DD did put some effort into like making them, you know, they're not like kind of like the cheese feats, like like Sentinel or any of like the the Magic Initiate ones or things that like give you like, uh, I don't nothing that gives you like a stat boost. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna say, um, pretty powerful level one feat that I picked up on uh on Andorra uh, in our campaign. That musician feat that on a on a short rest I can play some music and give everybody inspiration and actually have a use for that inspiration, that's basically giving people advantage on like, oh, it's up to proficiency bonus, but even at low levels, you're giving two or three people the ability to have advantage on a check or or re-roll a check. That's really damn powerful for a level one. Yeah, that's super so, impactful. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is that like it's very powerful, but also if you look at those feats, I feel they all are very like they're part of an actual character trait, right? Yeah, like the fact that you're a performer feats. or you're a medic, like they allow you to be more of like whatever your vision is at level one. Like yeah. it's not the feast, it's just like, oh look what like cool. Like so you're a medic, you're performance like what are you? It's like uh I'm a bit smarter and I have an extra spell. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I do like that. I like the flavor they add um, I think they're a lot of fun, and I don't think they add a lot to the to the power. And as a DM, I mean, you you can balance around that. You can bust up up a little bit. But as a player, I think having that flexibility and the additional choices to make uh, that's that's really cool for flavor and character creation. For sure. And since you mentioned that one feat, uh, I think we're we're all agreed the level one feats are pretty cool in certain situations, as long as it's limited to the the actual level one feats. Inspiration is something that comes up a lot because we always forget to use it or players forget to use it or forget to give it around. So, yeah, I think taking a look at uh, different inspiration rules that we've played with or that you've seen uh, and uh, like what you think about those. So like the first one I can think about is like, do you like inspiration as advantage or inspiration as like a reroll? So they have to use it, choose to use it on a on a roll and to give themselves advantage. Or use their inspiration to re-roll a die, essentially. Well, personally... What is it... What well, is it rules say, as written? Uh, kind of do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know if what the official ruling on what it is. I personally have always done it as... Is, you know, you can re-roll the die... Uh, after rolling but before like you know what the result is yeah so 
Uh, the rules as written is actually, if you have inspiration, you can expend it when you make an attack roll, saving throw, or ability check. Spending the inspiration gives you advantage on the roll. So you have to choose to use it ahead of the roll. Rules yeah, I've, I've never played it that way. I've always played I've also it. Never, like, I've been yeah, over I've also never really time. played it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I've usually just played it as re- re-roll. <laughs> do, you, do you like the re-roll? Do you like the advantage? I like the option to have a character fuck up and like, oh, no, my inspiration. I think flavor wise, it makes more sense to like kind of declare it while you're doing stuff. But uh, mechanically, I think the, the re-roll is kind of nice. And I think I think this, too, is a little bit dependent on, you know, probably what we're also going to discuss is that I don't give out a ton of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is like a little bit more rare in my games, which is why, you know, allow for the, you know, re-roll before results. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. It's definitely more powerful if you're allowing it to be used as a reroll, but I think that's kind of a, kind of a balanced thing as well. Like if you're giving yeah, it if, out if someone lot, could just give it out whenever they took a rest, that'd be way too powerful, and I'd probably change that. Yeah, yeah so <laughs> let, let's kind of segue into kind of alternative kind of inspiration systems. Um, I, I know in, in my game, uh, I've introduced some little house rules that... Uh, and I know that we've kind of done this in, at your table, Mike, on occasion, but it's not like an official DM thing. But in my game, it's an official thing. If a player does something really cool or does or says something really cool or feels if other players feel like they're acting in character, my players can give each other inspiration or just like so, they can explain how they were inspired and they can take inspiration. See, I really like that. And also having just for the first time ever actually looked at the way the inspiration rule is supposed to work. Uh, if you have inspiration, you can reward another player for good role playing, clever thinking, or simply doing something exciting in game. When another player character does something that really contributes to the story in a fun and interesting way, you can give up your inspiration to give that character inspiration. Yeah, so I, I use that, but you don't have to give up anything. You can just, as a player, be like, yeah, that was really cool. And my my character sees you do this and they feel kind of bolstered and whatever. And, you know, like I'm going to take inspiration. Um, yeah, so I allow them to, it's interesting because I allow them to, if another player does something really cool, I allow them to give themselves inspiration. And, uh, if another player does something really cool, I allow them to give the other person inspiration. It's just kind of based on if they feel their character is really inspired or if they feel the other characters like just extremely inspiring, does something cool. I allow them to pick one. So if they already have inspiration, they can give it out. If they don't have inspiration, they can feel inspired and take inspiration. So there's a lot of kind of uh, things to play with in terms of inspiration, in my opinion. I know that it's like, well, aren't your players just going to do it all the time and always have inspiration? And it's like, (laughs) no, I think there's kind of this unwritten, like this unwritten kind of rule where you're not going to use it it. too much. We take it away. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, (laughs) but but. My players can also give me inspiration. Oh, and if I do something that would cool, be they, dumb. Can give, they can give me inspiration <laughs> and uh, they will get it used against them at some point. Yeah, I know. It's, I know it's dumb, but it's kind of that like <laughs> me, that's kind of like in character versus out in character. Yes, it's dumb out of character. They might go, hey, that was really cool. You can have inspiration for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of cool, like table play, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's fun to give the DM weapons to use against you <laughs> we already have all of the weapons 
Yeah, that's true, but it feels a little bit more... I guess it feels a little bit more like... It's putting the player's finger on the trigger. It, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's like, hey, you could, you could, you can pull this if you want. <laughs> yeah, we only died because we gave him inspiration. It's not, it wasn't our failings. It was our, it was our, our generosity that got us killed. If you didn't want a TPK, you shouldn't have enjoyed my content. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then I guess the other one that has been coming up a lot is the new one D and D inspiration rules. Which, uh, for those that haven't read the stuff yet, uh go back and listen to our episodes because I'm sure look them up before this for the uh, the one D&D rules. But the one D&D inspiration essentially lets you uh, gain inspiration anytime you roll a natural one on uh, ability check, saving throw or attack roll. Uh, it's basically like the oh, he fucked up here. Do better. And it gives you uh, an inspiration to use. And if you already have inspiration because you've been rolling terribly like I usually do, um, you can give inspiration to someone else if you already have it when you roll a natural one again. I actually really liked the idea of this because I find it funny of like turning your failure into inspiration. Although I love it. I think it's funny. If if I, if I adapt this, I actually would have it so that you can only give inspiration to other people in natural ones. Cause I like the idea of you failing so bad that your team tries to do better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. They just, yeah, you. If, if I was to use a variant of this, I'd be like, yeah, yeah no. I think this if is... you get a nat one, you choose to give inspiration to someone else. Just who's now going to try to save like, your ass. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other thing is the other thing this comes into play with is like, if you roll a nat one, your party just be like, what the fuck <laughs> are you doing? Get up here and <laughs> giving you inspiration that way. I think I think I think giving out inspiration on a one. I don't know. I think it's kind of stupid, but I do think that it has its place, but I don't think it should be on everyone because I think there's a there's role play. There's role play and kind of like flavor things that can come out of you rolling a one and not feeling inspired, feeling kind of defeated or shitty. Yeah, but I think it's just like we're thinking about it because the word is inspiration, but I think it's like it's just a game mechanic that lets you get an advantage somewhere else. And I would say that like if you're rolling a one where you're getting that shitty uh like outcome for you or the thing that's gonna make you feel bad, there's also the like using that, learning from that, working through it, right? Maybe that would help you with a further check later on. Sure. If your character is this like super mentally solid, I'm gonna do better, fully optimistic like character right but i think it would be funny to be like as a dm just be able to de-inspire like okay you rolled a one you have (laughs) non-inspiration you feel really shitty and like i think for some characters like playing to that makes sense too right where it's like having those moments of like man i'm not really like getting this or i'm not like I'm feeling defeated here. I think I think that can make for a lot of cool role play opportunities too. So I'd be careful about like inspiring on every nat one. I, I don't quite like that. I, I got that. And that's kind of like the same reason why I would make it so only other people could be inspired. Just because then it lets you kind of like have that failure, but then also be like, yeah, like that failure was so bad that someone else in the team felt the need to make up for my lack of ability. <laughs> You know, it's the thing, you know, yeah, everyone makes funny. the one jump and the other guy just, you know, trips and falls off the cliff. So, like, the next guy is just like, oh, I got to not do that. Yeah, I need to really <laughs> attempt this jump so I don't also crater. 
Yeah, and I mean, if if somebody does kind of fall off a cliff and and hurt themselves, um, can always kind of run over and uh, you know feed them a healing potion. Which kind of the next thing we're going to talk about is homebrew and and kind of homebrew rules surrounding healing potions. What do you guys do for healing potions in your games? Many things. I go back and forth. <laughs> yeah, I'll say the same thing. I I don't think I ever make it just a straight bonus action for potions. Um, I guess you could do that if you were in like a very brutal type of campaign and you were making them super available to people. Um, but what I do like doing is having like a thing they can either requisition or like this comes from Chris's game too, like a thing they can requisition or they can uh, like seek out and develop over time and get later on in campaigns, which are like uh, like I think one of our characters has a Viking helmet, like the, the beer helmet with two drinking potion uh, slots in it. <laughs> So he can use up to two That's bonus awesome. actions uh, like while he has those loaded, he can use a bonus action to drink a potion from his helmet because it's already there. He just has to like put the tube in his mouth, that kind of stuff. And I think Crick, Chris, That's you had amazing. like the quick use potion belts where you had like a bandolier of potions and there were a limited a number of slots on that you could recharge on a rest. Yeah, so I, I used a very similar thing where essentially it was like the potion belt where the idea behind it was that during a shorter long rest, you would essentially decant potions, these quick use bottles that have like wax stoppers. You could essentially like bite off and chug. Uh, and that only had three slots to have potions in them, uh, which, you know, gave you some bonus action potions, but also stopped you from like, you know, stocking up with a ridiculous amount and just, you know, every turn chugging a potion. And yeah. also I feel when you, make potions a bonus action i think it also opens it up to kind of like have some of the lesser used potions uh especially if you're playing a class that like doesn't have a ton of bonus actions mm -hmm. you're like you know what maybe i will take this like potion of spider climb or growth or fire breath or something yeah yeah so i i do something a little different in my campaigns um I think as a player, like combat only lasts sometimes three, four rounds, maybe, you know, six to ten for kind of these bigger fights. And I think as a player, it's very hard to justify using your your action to drink a potion. I think a lot of times it feels bad. And a lot of times, um, like the whole action economy is like you're using your most powerful um, currency in the action economy, which is your action to do what 44 healing or something like that 2d4 plus four whatever it is um so i think it can feel really bad for players to action potion especially if they roll really low on that roll so what i do in my campaigns is um i let you use a bonus action to drink a potion um and this just kind of pertains to healing potions um if you use a bonus action you do roll the dice and you can quickly try to chug it and you might spill some of it. So you're going to roll the dice and you can roll pretty low on that. If you're going to use your action to drink a potion, I just give my players max healing. Because I think if they're in a position where they need to use an action to drink a potion, it just feels devastatingly bad to roll two nat ones That's cool. and actually, for four. So, I, yeah, I, I do like the bonus action. You roll it and hey, it could go. You got that little risk reward. Uh, but if you want to spend your whole action, you're going to get the full the full effects of this thing. You are more generous than me, because what <laughs> I do is actually half as good as that. 
where essentially I just say if you use uh there is no option to use a bonus action. Uh but every time you use an action drink a potion, uh half the dice are considered maxed. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean this is I think this can be easily balanced out if you want to introduce this in your campaigns, the the bonus action drinking a potion uh, and giving them rolled healing or action for full healing. This is easily balanced out by how available these potions are in your game. So uh, you can kind of tweak that, you know, by allowing them to do this in situations where they need it. It's going to feel better, Um, but just don't give them five potions a day, right? Yeah, just make them more limited for sure. Yeah, you're going to really... You're going to really need that when you get crit. So uh, speaking of crit, <laughs> this is this is an area where like every freaking DM like works. It's differently as far as I'm concerned, but they're kind of two major two or three major kind of uh, crit homebrew rules we see often. Yeah. So not the one D&D rules. So there's the because creatures should still be able to crit. What a. Oh, yeah. No, I think they got rid of that. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Creatures not being able to crit. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think they totally got rid of that. Like, I think creatures still crit, and uh, <laughs> as a DM, I, I mean, I don't like that. But in in terms of homebrew crit rules, there's a few we see often, um, and I'll just kind of list all three out and go through each of them. But one is rolling twice. So if you're attacked as D6 plus 5, you'd roll 2D6 plus 5. The other is that you roll once, so D6 plus 5, and then double that, or double the dice. Um, and then the third one is brutal criticals, which is um, that one I always find hard to explain. But if you're rolling D6 plus five, you'd essentially get you double the dice. So it's two D6 plus five, but you'd get maximum. Yeah. The way um, I always explain it is max is damage. Plus Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Max damage plus roll is how I always explain it as well. So uh, like if your attack would be D6 plus five, then it is six because that's the max on your d6 plus a d6 plus five yeah i got you that's probably a better way to explain it (laughs) so anyways um what do you guys do in your games do you roll twice do you roll once and double the dice always brutal brutal criticals yeah i think uh if i'm playing uh kind of like outside of people i know my general thing for crits will be uh you know roll twice uh but i have also shifted to just always using brutal criticals yeah, I'm the same way. I think rolling twice, um, rolling twice can be, um, can be good and bad. I mean, if you, if you roll okay on one dice and then good on another, or if you roll bad on both, or if you roll, you know, there's there's kind of this. It can be really good for you or really bad. Uh, when you roll once and double the dice, kind of kind of the same thing happens. Where if you roll really low and then you're you're doubling that. Um, you don't get as much damage and it doesn't feel as good. If you roll really high, it feels great. But there's this very, like, this very, like, you can end up on the extreme side of the spectrum where Brutal Criticals generally, generally, I feel, makes crits feel, like, chunky, like they're supposed to. You're you're normally going to be on the above average. Yeah, well, you have to be above average, right? Spectrum when you that's, crit. That, for me, that's the whole point is, like, crits yeah. should feel good. Like a crit should never be less than what a normal attack could have been. Yeah. Critting makes me feel good. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And, but this comes with the caveat that 
your monsters can also brutal critical. So players oh, will get chunked. But I think that adds to the the urgency and the the feeling of like, man, I just took a, a big That's amount fair. of damage. So um yeah, I like it. All right, some some more combat homebrew rules, I guess. Flanking. And this is something that uh different people run differently as well, but essentially this rule is about having multiple team members in the same vicinity as the creature, giving you some sort of bonus. So how, how do you guys play? Well, flanking? first of all, I use flanking, which is an optional rule in itself. Uh, second of all, I also do the, uh, the line through method. I play the same way. Usually um, the only exception for me for the line through uh, is if something like if you're playing against like a large creature and there's like three people engaged with it, in that situation, I'm usually okay with it just being flanking because it's obviously occupied with the three things that are surrounding it. Um, yeah. You don't need to be the one that is on the back of it because it could be like spinning around to attack all of the things that are around it. Yeah, my, my general thing is like if it's something large enough for that, like once it's been flanked once, everyone else is also flanking. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've changed up the way I play this rule a little bit. Uh, I've tried different versions of it. So... I have tried when we talk about the line through method, we're basically saying if you can draw, if there are two characters within five feet of the enemy and you can draw a line between both those players and it intersects the enemy or goes through the enemy, that's flanking uh, for both of those characters. And they both get advantage on the roll. Um, another way I've played it is the whole back front thing where only the, if you can draw a line through it, uh, through an enemy, only the person at the enemy's back gets flanking advantage, which is essentially like mm -hmm. a backstab rule. Um, but I've actually switched off from both of those. And my new flanking rule is that if two melee characters are within five feet of the enemy, uh, they just get a plus two. Both of them get a plus two to their attack rolls. So it's now, it's now an attack roll bonus as opposed to being straight up advantage, because I think there's a lot of classes that play off advantage. Um, and getting advantage from flanking is just too easy, and it doesn't really let the sh the classes shine with their abilities, and uh, it makes certain abilities just feel more impactful. So I've kind of switched to if two melee people are within five feet of the creature, they both get a plus two. To That's fair. I don't know how much I like that because I do like rogues, and like a lot of what rogues have is keyed off of having advantage on stuff. In some situations, I mean, to be fair, if yeah, but I think within five feet of you, you'd have sneak attack anyways. You'd have sneak attack, yeah, but there are some that uh, you, if you have advantage on rolls, there are different modifiers for some subclasses. That's true. Yeah, but I think there are ways, I, I think the reason I like this is because there are so many ways for your team to give you advantage, and there are also ways for yourself to give you advantage, like uh, there are some mm -hmm. swashbuckler things I think that can give you advantage on rolls, but I think that kind of because as a rogue, you're always going to say, well, I'm going to just move within five feet of my melee group and I have advantage all the time, every time. And I think it kind of lessens some of the impact of uh, things like guiding bolt or um, like just other things that give advantage. So that was kind of my thought okay. process there. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. And most most of my most of my party's casters. So maybe if I try this in a heavy melee party, uh, I get 
a talking to, but that's my see, current flanking rule at the moment. And and I yeah, do see for, for me, like it's well, one of those so. things where, especially very melee focused characters like that, if you're playing like a melee, like rogue assassin, I mean, you already will only have one attack a turn, and your positioning to get that advantage is kind of like one of the few things you kind of get. Yeah, which is why I kind of like it. Is, you know, like you know, spellcasters yeah. have all these spells and options abilities, and like the rogue is like. Well, I mean, I either hit them or I can, you know, try to be smart with moving around and maybe get advantage to hit them better. Yeah. And then my turn's done. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it, too, is like, I'll just throw three ro- three words out there, but uh, bonus action hide. Like, I think I think there, as a rogue, there are ways to get that advantage. There are ways, especially with kind of stealthing. And I think that plays into the rogue fantasy is instead of you just saying, well, I'm going to just stick out in the open. And I'm going to get advantage because, you know, Joe Paladin is five feet from me. I think this really has you uh, try to engage with the environment a little more. Try and find creative ways to give yourself advantage. It's something I'm trying. I don't know. As somebody Um, who is now currently playing a rogue, um, like you can't just hide in plain sight, right? So if there's not a lot of stuff around and you're in like wide open battlefields and things like that, it's really hard to hide in some places. Yeah, I get that. But I'm I'm saying like that's not your yeah. only avenue for advantage. So I think there are multiple ways to get it. I don't think it's particularly hard to get advantage on an attack. Um, so, yeah, it's something I'm trying. It's something I'm thinking about and I'll see how it goes. Uh, but yeah, that's another way you can play it is giving a straight up attack bonus as opposed yeah. to advantage on the roll. Yeah, and I guess if you... Uh, if you miss that attack or you're unable to to hide in plain sight <laughs> and you get just smashed over the head by a giant with a huge club and you fail all your death saving throws you dead and there are some homebrew rules around death and resurrection so um any ones you're aware of like dislike etc so for me, uh, with like death saving throws, there's a couple of fun ones. Like I, I love the stuff that's built in already around death saves. Like you're all a natural 20, you're back up with one HP and stuff like that. Um, but I think rolling death saves in secret can be really fun um, for the player just so the, the party doesn't know what's going on. So they really have to make the decision about whether or not they're going to spend some of that time in that turn to help you or if they're like, oh, he can wait. <laughs> that kind of stuff so um that's that's a fun one yeah i kind of i enjoy the idea of hidden death saving throws sometimes like i know you used recently uh the other campaign to kind of like hide a sort of former player character's death saves as he escaped mm-hmm. which is interesting uh personally you know i enjoy having them be open just because especially in a lot of my campaigns because i use like uh the critical injuries and stuff i feel yeah. like knowing the death saves is a little bit more fair just because i encourage them kind of like leaving people a little bit longer and so also hiding death saves i feel would kind of stack on top of what i've already made a little bit of an oppositional death situation but that's just me and my games personally yeah, especially because in that situation specifically, like if that player silently rolls a natural one and they have two death saves and a real thinks they only have one death save or they could only have one death save, right? Then you're in a situation where one hit to a player who's down could kill them outright. 
when you could have healed them, but you just didn't know. Yeah, exactly. So. I'm not against it. Just I'm already using rules that affect death situations that hidden death saves, although can be cool. I wouldn't personally use because I have other rules that would make it suck. <laughs> yeah, that's very fair. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't feel strongly about either of these. I generally have players roll death saves in the open because um, I, I think losing a character because somebody misinterprets uh, what's happening or just isn't aware that you're dying. I think if you're going to do. I think if you're going to like roll in secret as the as the GM, you really have to kind of describe what's happening. Um, but I think that like possibly takes away the the whole reason for doing it in secret. Like if I go, oh, he starts coughing up blood. You're like, okay, well, he saved, he, he failed that one, right? Yeah, um, I would, I would honestly, I would never have the GM roll death saves for player characters. Some people, awful some me. people do that. The GM rolling death saves in secret. So I, I know, I know it's a homebrew that some well, people some use. Some people are bad I could people never too. do it. Yeah, exactly. Some <laughs> people are terrible. Oh, you heard it here. It just feels like you're taking away so much player agency. Like yeah. they have no idea what's going on. You're rolling death saves in secret. And then they're like, I toss this guy a healing word. It's like, oh, well, no, he rolled a natural one last round. So he's actually dead. And you just didn't know yet. That's well, awful. And not not only taking away player agency, but it's just like it sucks when you're that guy in the turn tracker who's dying. It's just like, hey, uh, guy who's dead. You know what? The one thing you normally get to do in your turn in this, I'll actually be doing that for you and not telling you about okay, it. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, anyways, exactly. next guy's turn. <laughs> so, okay. So, so I get that. I get the feels bad notion of it, but I cannot be convinced that in this case, taking away player agency is an argument because they're dying. They don't have agency. Um, like it's the same. They thing. at least have the chance. They can roll for themselves, yeah. right? Yeah, I get that. Like at least it's in their dice. hands. Yeah, they're rolling the dice. It's in their hands. That is their agency. Yeah. Okay. I I get that. But as far as I'm concerned, it's like similar to using something like a charm on a player, or uh, like Crown of Madness, or something that just completely takes away their turn and their agency. I know that this is death, so it's a little bit more impactful than just the but charm. But then, Scott, where does it end? Are you going to roll their <laughs> saving throws when they're charmed? Oh. Is that now a DM roll? Uh -oh. Ooh, you're charmed. Let me roll your save on this <laughs> for you. Oh, look, you failed again. Damn. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm now getting... I still get your dice. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting... Where uh... does it end, Scott? Where does it end? Yeah, you have I, to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. get that. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. I've I've never really uh, kind of had this come up. I've had dead saves come up. They usually happen in the open. I've never had a chance to try these two things out, uh, so I don't know how it goes. But I, I'll 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 kind of play the like political angle here and go. This is a session zero conversation. Oh, a hundred percent a session zero <laughs> conversation. I, I like, think I, I only I think I feel so strongly about it because I am actually playing a game right now that's in Fantasy Grounds. One of the good things about Fantasy Grounds is that it resolves all the rolling and stuff. So like I can target six guys and it'll roll all their saves. And that's great. The thing I don't like is that if the DM is controlling a caster or something and that caster like throws something at me, it auto rolls my save and I have no say in what happens. It's just like the dice rolling happens and then I take a shit ton of damage. Yeah. And I don't like not rolling my own saves. I, in I any get situation. I get that. But I, th <laughs> I think that this comes down to like, I, I think logically it makes sense that a DM would roll or that you don't get to roll your own save there. But I think this comes down to, I want to roll dice. 
Yeah. Which I get. Yeah, I totally get. Yeah, if something's about to kill my character, I want to be the one that rolls the dice that determines whether or not I die. <laughs> Fair. Well, you're talking about in session zero, or why even have the players a session zero? Why don't you have the DM do session zero? Yeah, see, Chris <laughs> is just doing everything for the players now. Yeah, see, I, I was like at probably like 50, and Chris is now at like 110. <laughs> Chris is yeah, Chris turned up to, to 11. Extreme, yeah. <laughs> I'm a reactionary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, death is something that I haven't had to deal with a lot in my games. Um, not to say that I'm like a care bear because I do throw stuff at my players and have downed them quite a few times and they do make death saves in the open. I have not killed a PC in the Strixhaven campaign, uh, but just curious when you do have PC dies, when you do have PCs that die, what are your resurrection rules? Is it can they just be brought up with a revivify every time? throughout the whole campaign do you do something special how do you play resurrection i don't have super strong feelings about because i feel like i'm still kind of like finding what i want i want some kind of consequence and yeah. uh like i've looked at uh like fading soul world stuff uh recently i had something where it's just like uh essentially like a d100 table of just like quirks you just have like some kind of like just just a little little thing that happens of like the slight consequences of your soul being brought back. I know in one of my games that I started using this in, uh, one of the players has to eat a blooming onion every month or he dies. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's awesome. I like that a lot. And yeah, I, I, I right now I haven't done anything in terms of homebrew rules with um resurrection. I know there are a bunch. Um the one that I've seen that was actually intriguing to me. Uh, was what the, there is no like low level resurrection magic. So revivify doesn't exist in this game. But Mike, that takes away player agency. <laughs> if I'm a cleric and I can't revivify, <laughs> what's the uh, point, right? I'm just fucking with you. But yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I know. There's like uh, one thing I've seen is, I mean, this critical role. Uh, Matt Mercer kind of plays it this way, where there are there's a ritual involved in resurrection and there's roles that have to happen. Um, and there is the opportunity that this resurrection does not work. Um, and I think there's also this kind of, um, this effect where the more you get resurrected, the harder those, those DCs, those DCs become. So you have kind of less of a chance of being brought back, which I do kind of like because if resurrection is just completely easy and you could just do it and there's no drawbacks, it doesn't feel impactful to die. Yeah, that's fair. I, I like the idea of the consequences. I actually really don't like the the critical role um, way of doing resurrections. I don't like the like increasing DC or the fact that like you could have a bunch of people standing around doing a ritual using the spell meant to do the thing. Uh, and then it just doesn't work because you didn't roll well enough, even though the role play was good. Like I would honestly be more OK with just doing a ritual and basing it off of how I felt the role play went. <laughs> rather than uh just like oh well that was a super impassioned speech and you made three people at the table cry but you rolled a four so sorry he's dead like yeah, i hate that i wouldn't put it on one roll i try to kind of that might be kind of a group thing uh because yeah it coming down to a single roll yeah i think that kind of sucks but i think when you if you add four or five rolls i think when you average it out you can kind of and you can always adjust that based on the dc I don't know that I like the the whole notion of like, I'm just going to judge how well your role play is. And I'm going to give you a yes <laughs> or no based on that. Um, Cause that takes away player agency, Mike. 
Well, speaking of takeaway player agency, there's always the big question of should you allow warlocks to be resurrected without asking them some serious questions? Ooh. I like that, because technically a warlock's soul belongs to their patron, right? Depending on their pact, it might. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's really cool things to play with there. I, I think as a warlock, um, yeah, I think that's a really cool opportunity. Did you sell your soul? Like that—that That is a fun DM card to play. It's just like, all right, we have the things to uh, revivify our, uh, our our great old one friend, Tiefling Warlock. And then he's like, hold up. What exactly is your pact? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I Are like you that. able to be revived? Is your soul available? <laughs> I think there's really cool, especially like the the warlock realm. Uh, if you're playing like some sort of celestial, um, I, I think there's really cool opportunity there for some of those private role playing moments where it's like, um, you know, here jump down in the channel with me, and your patron's gonna have gonna have a word with you, right? Yeah. Uh, or the notion of having the resurrection technically fail, but having this divine intervention moment where now a deity steps in. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of really cool flavor and, and character building and character moments that can come through something like failed resurrection or attempted resurrection, etc. Yeah, I think as long as it's something everybody at the table knows about and agrees with, it's fine. It, again, it's just going back to the whole like everything. All of these things we're talking about, all of these house rules should all be things you discuss in a session zero. Or Absolutely. if you discover it like later in the campaign and you bring it up and you have a discussion with the entire table and if everybody agrees then you implement it yeah i think if it has if it has if it has the the ability or the potential to really piss people off like gm rolling death saves in secret um i think that's something that should be brought up but for example if one of my characters died we haven't really talked about what happens when characters die so i think as a dm here you kind of use your discretion and feel out your table and you should have a feel for kind of how people respond to you and your style. Uh, so, for example, if a character were to die in my campaign, I'm probably giving them exhaustion and I'm probably knocking their max HP down for a while. And I don't I don't think anyone would really have an issue with that. It seems like yeah, a pretty reasonable thing to, to do on death. Yeah, I mean, like, as I said, like, I've been kind of like mucking around with it. Uh haven't settled on like a specific table. I've looked at a few that just kind of give you just like little quirks, little drawbacks that are either, you know, short term if they're, you know, like an actual effect or they're just like a new personality quirk or effect you might have, which are like, you know, I I, I do feel like there needs to be something tied to res, especially like once characters get enough money, it kind of of becomes a little bit trivial to resurrect someone. That's like having something like, maybe it's not like a, you know, a debuff or something or things like that. But even just, you know, as I said, you know, the character who has just now has to eat a blooming onion every month or he dies. Yeah. I think a little, it's kind of like a a fun little character quirk. That's just like, Hey, remember, remember the time you died? Let's uh, let's go hit up (laughs) the old TGI Fridays. I I think a little Uh, quirk like that makes so much sense. Uh, And I don't, I don't see any, any players having issue with that. It seems pretty reasonable. I also like kind of the, the, the homebrew with kind of those, uh, critical injury tables that you've talked about when you when you die or when you're being resurrected having uh a role to you know you lose an arm or this happens oh those are just on zero hp that's not even death well having something similar to that on death where you know you have a role that's what i'm in search of so hey if you guys out there listening find one you like send it my way (laughs) 
yeah, maybe we can come up with one of those brainstorm and get a, a small little uh, D20 roll table or D100 roll table. That'd be cool. That'd be super fun. Hey, chat GPT, make me a roll table. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I never even thought about doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Generate well, we just AI. lost Chris. Yep. Yeah, we're gonna have to finish this episode without Chris. He's he's gone. <laughs> uh, hey, <laughs> hey, Mid Journey. <laughs> All right, what what's a what's like a voice AI? We, we I actually can, don't know any voice ones. We could just like, hey, generate us a character for a D and D podcast helping DMs. Uh, this character <laughs> should make a lot of puns. Um, and yeah, You're just trying <laughs> to make it. Chris in AI. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 that that is so this could tell you a little bit about chris's dm style where if i'm generating an ai to be chris on the podcast the only prerequisite is make a lot of puns <laughs> <Yeah>. good times <laughs> we have lost chris <laughs> i think he's is yeah i think he's just gone <laughs> all right uh, which is a shame because the last thing we were going to talk about is actually his Hello. Uh, sorry, I am back. Uh, this is actually, I'm already on 10 things, Jared. And they are <laughs> of higher quality than expected. Uh, well, okay, let's. what were they? Uh, I'm not going to say them because I'm going to be using them in the campaign. <laughs> He's going to use them against us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you give us one? Can you give us a little taste? All right, fine. I will say I asked it. Uh, I just said generate a D100 table for Wild Space Encounter set in D&D Spelljammer. Uh, a spacefaring beholder attacks your ship, attempting to steal valuable treasures and crew members. <laughs> Pretty decent. Wow. That's awesome. Or a comet with valuable resources, nature artifacts, but also dangerous radiation and volatile conditions. That's super cool. Decent. This is solid. Wow, it's really just generating these uh, rapid rate. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. kind of The last one is kind of this, uh, I guess it's a subsystem, but it's also like, Super homebrewy. It's not really a homebrew rule, more so homebrew little subsystem that has a bunch of rules. Uh, but Chris, I think you're talking about some gun stuff. Yes, a a, a homebrew module, if you will, uh, that I found. So I have recently started a generally spell jamming themed campaign, and one of the questions came up: guns are a thing in that, but D and D guns are a bit lackluster, not in terms of power, and that's actually kind of the problem is that D&D guns are actually extremely overpowered in a lot of settings, unless you play specifically the gunslinger, which, you know, I think is fine and good, but it does limit you. So I found a little module called Smoke and Thunder, uh, Firearms for 5th Edition by Joshua Omer. You can find it on DM Skill, the link in the show notes, and I love this thing it's essentially what it is it is a massive compendium of a ton of weapons that also lets you customize which ones are in your game by kind of splitting them up into uh ages so there's like the simplest one is like late medieval firearms with the repeating crossbow and then like renaissance age of empire early industrial and it goes all the way into uh, the advanced energy age, which is where you'll find blasters and laser pistols and things like that. And what's really cool about this is it's built to fit into existing D&D, where every age of weapon is split into simple and martial. 
so that if you are any character who, you know, DM rules depending, you know, like could potentially use a gun, then you, if you have martial prowess, you can use martial guns. And then there's simple guns. So, for example, like a Derringer is a simple weapon. It does a D4 piercing with a range of 20 to 100 with a reload of one. It's very similar to the uh, the gunslinger things where they have like a, a reload factor. Does not have misfire, which I also like. Yeah, but it's nice. Be- it is nice because it keeps the damage like reasonable. It's comparable to kind of like uh, to like range weapons of D and D and crossbows and stuff like that. Uh, but what I love about it is that as you increase in the different types of stuff, they have uh, different ammo for it. So there's like. Uh, armor piercing rounds that ignore piercing resistance you can get blanks if you want them hollow points uh you can get a paintball gun and get like holy water filled paintballs it has like all these different things in it which is really really cool yeah that sounds cool it looks like there's fighting styles for firearms new spells feats seems pretty uh pretty expansive yeah that's what like it makes essentially it turns like being a person who uses guns into like a level near a caster in the amount of ways you can like customize guns and like feats you can take for it. Uh, so it, it has several new fighting styles. A couple examples is there's uh gunslinging where you add your proficiency bonus to initiative. And if you're wielding a revolver in one hand and have a, a free hand, you gain the rapid fire property, which allows you to shoot it faster than usual. Or there is uh, the sniping fighting style where you attack with a ranged weapon while hidden, you do not automatically reveal your position. You get to make a stealth check the first time you make a ranged attack each round. And That's potential cool. observers can oppose it with their own perception check. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, it's really cool. I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks building all of this shit out in D&D Beyond yeah. <laughs> uh, in the homebrew section. So if anybody does want it, uh, <laughs> let me know and I'll see if I can uh, send you links to the uh, all the stuff homebrew so you don't have to do it yourself. Yeah, I think the uh, the one thing I'm interested in is uh, six feats for firearm combat for firearm combat, including gun fu. Oh yeah, gun fu is really interesting. Uh, so that one's cool, or it's just, uh, built to be essentially like your John Wick or your Equilibrium. Uh, so it does have a prerequisite, which is another one of the feats they added. So you first have to start with handgun expert which is uh, thanks to extensive practice with handguns, you gain the following benefits. You ignore the reload property of removal magazine firearms with which you are proficient. You uh, don't have disadvantage if you're within five feet of a hostile creature. So, you know, crossbow expert. Uh, and when you use the attack action and attack with a one-handed weapon, you can bonus attack, bonus action to attack with a handgun or pistol you are holding. So that's, you know, level one and then gun foo uh which needs this that feat as a prerequisite is you are highly trained with integrating firearms into close quarters brawling while you're grappling a target you have advantage on one-handed firearm attacks against them (laughs) in addition you can wield the firearms you're proficient with as melee weapons using the rules for a club for one-handed firearms and the rules for a great club for two-handed firearms that's really cool which means these are both built for the gunk if you go Kensei and you make a gun, one of your Kensei weapons, you're golden yeah. with these. You're just running off around the walls. You're grappling people. You're shooting them in the head. <laughs> <laughs> just whipping them afterwards. Yeah, that sounds Running fun. 60 feet away. <laughs> 
That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Equilibrium is exactly <laughs> what I had in mind when I read this for the first time. Yeah. There's a lot of fun stuff you can do with this. Uh, so, for example, combining some of these things. So a lot of the rifles, of course, have pretty long range. There is also the option you can buy scopes for rifles, where essentially, depending on the magnification of the scope, uh, you increase the range of the gun by the magnifier. And so let's say you take the uh, the sniping feat, where you get to make that uh, that stealth check every time you fire. Well, let's say you have a five-time scope. You're shooting from optimistically, depending on the gun, as you get up there. It could be, you know, five to almost a kilometer away with some of the uh, higher-level rifles. That's nice. And uh, then you, take, uh, you put a suppressor on that, which gives you advantage on stealth checks to maintain stealth after shooting yeah there's so many cool things to modify the way combat works i think my favorite one actually came into effect in the game that we played where uh there's a new action in combat actions in in this that is uh provide cover fire which is you protect an ally by using a ranged weapon to threaten their enemies when you take this action choose an ally you must be wielding a loaded ranged weapon until the beginning of your next turn each time the ally is attacked by a creature that you can see you may fire one piece of ammunition to grant them plus two to their AC. If your weapon has the spray property, you may instead spend three pieces of ammunition to grant them plus five to AC. If your weapon has the loading or reload properties, you cannot use more ammunition this way than the weapon is loaded with. So essentially, you can say, I'm going to take the covering fire action for someone as they're trying to run away. So you're already behind cover. They're in the middle. They're trying to get away. And you're just like, I'm going to provide cover fire. Every time they get attacked, you get to give them more AC by just like firing a warning shot over the dude's head that's attacking. That's really cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like it's pretty well thought out and expansive. And it's it's rated pretty highly on DMs Guild. So yeah, highly recommend checking it out. And again, it'll be linked in the show notes for sure. Yeah. And I know, Scott, if you being a support caster, there are gun spells. Yeah, it sounds totally cool. <laughs> <laughs> so there are things that make a lot of sense uh, that would exist. Is there is arrest missiles, which is a second level reaction <laughs> spell, where essentially an invisible barrier of force appears and protects you from all ranged weapon attacks. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. <laughs> the barrier's hit points equal to double your spell casting ability plus proficiency. That's cool. Uh, and then cause misfire, which is another reaction. Where when a creature you see within range makes a, a firearm attack, you make a halting gesture, foiling their attack, and it does 2d6 thunder damage to the target and makes it incapable of firing until they spend action to clear the barrel. Which I know you love your your shunts I and do your love. Uh, silvery barbs, so I feel like if there's if there was guns in that game, you would absolutely take Cosmos Fire, Cosmos Fire in a heartbeat. Probably. <laughs> yeah. I, I I yeah I think I think support casters. Um, I know it's not as flashy as the, you know, huge attacks and big smites and huge heals, but I think some of the support spells like Silvery Barbs, Temporal Shunt, Counter Spell, like they're so huge. I think they're so fun to play around. But yeah, it sounds like there's some spells in here that would yeah gives would, you that absolute thing you want is that it prevents yeah. an attack, it causes them damage, and makes them waste a turn as a reaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds fun. it's fantastic. And my other favorite one from that list, I think, was Seeking Shot, which is where you can touch a weapon uh, that is wielded by either you or an ally. So you can like grant like your sniper friend this. Uh, but the next attack that is made with the weapon that you imbue with this ignores cover and invisibility affecting the target. They fixed true Provided strike. Th 
Yeah, provided that the spell <laughs> hasn't ended and there is a path at least one inch wide to the target. The path does not need to be straight or visible so long as the target is within the weapon's range. So essentially you can grant this guy, you can grant anybody like your sniper friend and if the target that you he is targeting is within the range of the weapon, you get advantage on an attack roll against them. I like that you don't. I like that it doesn't have to be a straight line. It's kind of what's that Angelino Jolie movie? Wanted. Just, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Just bending bullets. It's a it's a seeking bullet that just like bends around corners. It can go through anywhere as long as there's a one inch space for the bullet to travel through. That's amazing. Yeah, and then you can also spend some time to silver ammunition if you want to, so stuff will bypass um, non magical attacks. Yeah, that's sweet. Sounds like this this person put a lot of effort into this. A lot of work and. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of really cool stuff in it. Yeah, if you're looking to do like Space Western or just to include guns in your game, I highly recommend this module. It's great. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of it mainly because it just fixes that the kind of disparity where like the base D&D guns are like, these do a ridiculous amount of damage. And then the gunslinger runs are like, they have misfires and are tied to a single subclass. So like this <laughs> one kind of splits around. It's like, hey, like here's some guns. They do a reasonable amount of damage. They can be used by a bunch of different people, and you can choose the level of of technology you want. Yeah, it, it just gives you a lot more choice for the world you're trying to build if you want to include firearms in it. It's great. But yeah, I think that's all of the the homebrew rules that we had for you folks today. Uh, if you have any favorite homebrew rules, you can always send them over to us uh, on Insta, Twitter, Facebook, or TikTok at DMs Discuss, or uh, via email at dmsdiscuss at gmail.com. Or join the Discord. We have a little Discord community. Feel free to pop in there and, and chat with us as well. And you don't need to scour Reddit and DMs Guild for homebrew ways to listen to our podcast. Simply subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher app. And as always, check the show notes for fun stuff and all the links about some of the things we talked about today. We'll catch you after a long rest. <laughs>